When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the programme, Kevin has been on to us because he has discovered that his passport is out in May. And in, like he knows he can't travel anywhere and he has no immediate plans to travel uh, anywhere. But he said he hadn't realised that his passport was, was going to run out so quickly. Because obviously not having travelled anywhere last year, a lot of people haven't even looked at their passports, uh, certainly now in well over a year. But he's just saying that he would like to have his, an up-to-date passport so that when, please God, in the sometime in the future when we are allowed to travel overseas. He wants to have his passport uh, ready to go and he's wondering because you can apply for a renewal online but he's wondering and he's asked us to put a shout out. Has anybody managed to receive a passport? Did you actually get a passport by going through the renewal online uh, process? Because when I've gone into the Department of Foreign Affairs to their passport online website, they say that the passport service has paused operations in line with the move to level five of the government's national framework on living with COVID-19 and they have paused operations since the 24th of December. Now they have issued 1,600 urgent passports so far this year and there now has started to be a call for the service to resume because there's a huge backlog of applications. At the moment it's only been used for emergency and urgent services are if you need to leave the country for a work related issue or there's a health reason or there's a, a death in the family anyway they will issue with a passport or renew your passport on those uh, grounds. Now what are the staff doing? The staff that work in the passport office it seems they've been temporarily assigned to provide consular assistance to citizens overseas. So I don't know how busy they actually are, but that seemingly is what staff are doing. But figures released this week show that there are about 66,000 passport applications in the system. So there's go- there is a massive backlog there. And I know the Fine Gael Senator, Regina Doherty, uh, earlier in the week, she was calling for the public services to resume immediately obviously with protective measures. She's not saying throw open the passport offices and let people uh, walk in, but she said something needs to be done to reduce the backlog. She says the pausing of routine passport applications and renewals for such a long period of time is deeply worrying and it's causing this huge backlog. And that got me thinking, I mean... uh, we obviously everyone has to be kept safe and you want to keep the passport staff safe but if people are putting in particularly the renewal online you can do everything now online I mean John Paul last year had to do his 
passport online. You need to take the photograph at home and they won't accept. You can't move on in the process unless the photograph is absolutely perfect. So it isn't a case of they'll have to contact you again because the photograph isn't up, up to scratch. You can't get on to the next stage until all of the information is filled in. So it's a very clever system that they have in place. So I can't understand why they can't be rolling through those renewal ones, the easy ones that you're not sending in. You don't have to send in uh, documentation because they're saying online that anyone who has already submitted supporting documentation and if you're applying, for example, for a first time, you have to send in the long form of your birth cert and all of that. And if you're applying for a child's passport do you, I know in some cases the parents' passport has to be submitted as well. So people will have sent in their own passport and we're told that anyone who has already sent in supporting documentation, do- documentation that they're all being held safe at the moment and held securely. And they're now saying that if you need any of those documents back, you can contact the passport online and go through their web chat service and that's the same service if you need a passport to travel in for emergency. But what we're trying to find out is are they processing any passports at all? Is it worth Kevin's time to go online fill in all the documentation and send it off on the hope that he might get his passport out or does he just join the queue of 66,000 passport applications that are already in in the system and I know we're working to try to have somebody on the programme just to try to get some clarity in why we so urgently need for passports to be back up and running as I say even if it's just for the renewal of a passport but if you know of or if you yourself got your passport renewed lately now since we've gone into level five so this would be anyone who applied online for a passport since the 24th of December did you physically receive have you got the passport back can you let us know please 1850 333 103 because I don't want Kevin to waste his time going through the process and he's just going to join a long long list and and it will remain like that until we come out of level five I think the passport office say when we go back into level four God knows we're a long way off going into level four. Uh, Until then, they are pausing the operations uh, while we are in level five. So your thoughts welcomed on that. And I see in the papers today that the Taoiseach Micheál Martin coming under huge pressure to allow the resumption of mass and other faith services and other forms of worship. It seemingly this it was raised at the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party meeting last night. Seemingly several TDs called for a resumption of mass church services and other forms of religious observances. Now with strict controls on numbers, again they're not saying allow for churches to be full. At the Fianna Fáil meeting, TDs pointed out that most of our churches are so large they can easily ad- accommodate scores of people staying two metres apart and we have done that in the past before and it has worked very well but I know from the church's point of view whenever we speak with the priests on the ground it's not accommodating the people inside in the church they can well do that tape off the individual seats allow you know a family maybe the husband and wife they can sit there and then somebody else has to go two seats behind and space them out around the church well able to do that and even when we were accommodating only 50 people inside in the church there wasn't any problem there but the problem then is the cleaning of the church afterwards all of the pews that have been used must then be cleaned 
for fear that somebody would have brought COVID in with them and that has become I know a little bit of a problem for some of the priests and some of the local parishes but there's a big push now again but it is interesting that it's coming from Fianna Fáil members themselves at government level they're saying to the Taoiseach we need to move we need to do something when it comes to the opening up of our uh, churches and it also seems that the government is going to face a court challenge from a this is a name that will be familiar to you Declan Ganley do you remember he was a former presidential candidate he's described as a telecoms businessman and he says he is going to challenge the government through the courts he is acting in defence he says of the spiritual welfare of the people of Ireland now something similar happened in Scotland and because of it places of worship are now open in Scotland a court deemed that the closure of churches in Scotland similar to what's happening here in this country they deemed it unlawful it was 27 faith leaders in Scotland took a judicial review on the claim that the Scottish government had exceeded its powers and they won in court and because of that churches and places of worship now in Scotland have opened so Declan Gandley here in Ireland believes there are constitutional provisions that mean the government here may also have exceeded its mandate. Uh, so he's going to, he's talking about taking a court challenge and I know Micheál Martin was responding to Deputy Danny Healy Ray who uh, also appealed for an increase in attendance at funerals and he, Micheál Martin's answer to that was look we accept that it is an issue, particularly the 10 people only allowed at a funeral. And he said, we just need to be very careful. And he, he did in particular talk about funerals. Micheál Martin says in, for, when it comes to funerals, he said, I think it's terrible myself. It's the one aspect of COVID that hits people the hardest, that they can't attend the funeral of a loved one. And he says, we will look at that. The churches have asked uh, for it, that they higher funeral numbers. And he said, I'm not giving any commitments or guarantees at this stage but he says it is something that they will uh, look at and I do think it's probably one of the hardest parts of COVID our families trying to limit the number of people that attend at a funeral it it really is so dreadfully, dreadfully uh, painful I was speaking with a family I know up the country they were a large uh, family and an elderly mother passed away and there's 10 children and the church, the priest said I'm sorry 10 is all that can come in. So the 10 children of this elderly woman uh, went into the church, but it meant any of them that were married couldn't come with them to offer them any kind of support. But the really heartbreaking part of it was there was grandchildren and none of the grandchildren were allowed in. They were all outside the church watching the proceedings on, you know, their phones and just really, really so, so uh, difficult for families. So the parliamentary party meeting last night, if you know, imagine it got quite uh, quite heated at uh, times. Michal Martin repeated, the process was fragile and we needed to avoid speculation. A comprehensive, he said, and cohesive announcement will be made next uh, week uh, on the period ahead. And that's what everybody's waiting on. Where are we going to be and what's it going to be from the uh, start of April? But it seems that there is a sense within government that nobody really knows at this stage what is going to happen next. Nobody can say for definite what is going to be announced next week, which will be 
be for the following week for the start of uh, April. We are at the start of April heading into a fourth month of national lockdown and it's been well flagged at this stage that there isn't going to be any major lifting of restrictions next month. Now a decision was taken to delay Neffet's weekly meeting. I mean I mentioned on Monday that Neffet will be having their weekly meeting on Thursday so that was due today. That has been delayed and instead that's going ahead next Monday. So they've moved their meetings from Thursday to Monday. And there's two reasons. Uh, this is according to Philip Ryan in the Irish Independent. He said there's two reasons for it. He said the Cabinet Committee on COVID-19 wants the most recent data when they will decide to update the path ahead plan for easing restrictions and vaccination in the nation. So by having the most up-to-date we'll have the information and the data that comes out over the weekend rather than take Neffet's recommendation on a Thursday and then everything can change on Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday when they go to sit down. So they want the very latest information. And secondly, it seems they are trying to avoid an information vacuum after Neffet makes a decision and before the Cabinet Committee considers the advice. If Neffet made a recommendation out of today's meeting you could guarantee by tomorrow it will inevitably have been leaked and then you'll have a weekend of the opposition demanding that the cabinet meet over the weekend and everyone's going to be talking about what Neffet has recommended um, before the cabinet committee even get to sit down and talk about it it's what the Taoiseach would say there'd be a lot of noise following the meeting and that's certainly what has been happening week on week when Neffet meet on a Thursday the cabinet subcommittee don't meet until a Monday they make the they then take the recommendation from Neffet they make a, dis- a, dis- a decision on it then they make the recommendation that the Cabinet meet on Tuesday and then it's Tuesday afternoon we get uh, to hear what's announced but most Tuesday afternoons we can nearly write the script for Micheál Martin because so much has been leaked since Neffet's meeting on the Tuesday, the Thursday so they're trying to avoid all that and they've said to Neffet don't meet on Thursday meet on Monday instead so because of that we're all in a bit of a vacuum as to what exactly is going to be announced next week but I think we can all pretty much uh, I think we're, we're all pretty much sure that there isn't going to be a major easing of any restrictions announced next uh, Tuesday. I think for most of us but well, most of us are hoping some easing of the 5k. Saturdays on C103.ie we bring you all of the excitement of the Premier League. Trevor Welch is back with Premier League Live on Saturday week April 3rd powered by Talk Sport. You can get all the pre-match analysis, live commentary there's exclusive interviews and of course there's the post-match breakdowns the Premier League live online would now stream a live action from BT Sport and Premier Sports with Now Sports Extra membership you can listen Saturdays on the C103 app or of course you can go to c103.ie Now thank you to some of your calls coming in about passports and this is our Kevin who's discovered his passport is out of date in May and he's wondering is it worth going through the online system or will he just get stuck there because the information figures released this week say there are 66,000 passport applications in the system already and we know since the start of Level 5 that the Passport Service has paused operations. Well we've had um, Marion and Kilmallock was on. Marion said I applied for my passport online in December and I received it last week. Now it wasn't for an emergency or anything a bit like Kevin discovered the passport was out of uh, date. So applied in December so it took three months but it it did uh, arrive. They did say to me says Marion in the initial email that there was 56,000 waiting but I did get my uh, passport even if there was a three month uh, delay.
delay. And then I've heard of other people who've sent it off and they've heard nothing. They've had no passport back. So I don't know whether it's worth Kevin doing the online. Could You could be lucky like Marion and receive the passport or maybe just by filling in all the information online, Kevin, you'll, you'll have it all done. So when we go into level four and they start to work through the backlog, it might be that, you know, they'll eventually get to yours and you, you'll have it all uh, done. Uh, actually, I've just checked in with John Paul. We're going to have somebody on tomorrow just to talk about this and to, to see what can be done to, to and are we any closer to the passport office going back and resuming their work. As I say, I can't understand if they're working in offices, surely they can all be well spaced out. Everything now is done online. They'll possibly be able to do some of that work remotely, if not all of the work remotely. It's not that they physically print the passport. So I I can't really understand why it's all been uh, paused. And John in Kildallery says, why don't they get the post offices to process the passports they, then they could give a percentage of every passport they issue could go by way of payment to post offices. It would be great for the post office a business and it would help to secure them going forward rather than see them uh, close. And I remember at the time they, there was a big push for the post offices to be allowed to process uh, passports. Remember there was a big, big push for that at the time, but nothing became of that. And I mean, passport offices have been calling for our Post offices have been calling for quite some time for things like road tax. Wouldn't it be great if you could pop into your local post office and get your road tax uh, done? I mean, any ex- additional services like that, John and Dollary is right, it would secure the future of our post offices. And en masse, and we're hearing that at the Parliamentary Party meeting yesterday, a push by some of the backbench TDs to Hall Martin coming under pressure to allow mass to resume in our churches. And in Donora obviously has family living in London and in New York because she says in London mass never stopped during any of the lockdowns, even the most severe lockdowns in London, I'm assuming this was right across England, uh, mass always went ahead. But what you had to do was you had to book your place. So if they were allowing 50 into the church or 100 into the church, you booked what mass you wanted to go to, you got I take it a seat number that you would you would use on the day and then you, you went along to Mass and Anne said it, she said the very same thing has operated in New York and New York have had some very strict lockdowns but the Mass has never stopped over there either but you booked your slot could we not accommodate could the churches not do something like that and have some kind of an accommodation like that where you would book it online I remember at Christmas did they do that at Christmas some of the churches before we went into this lockdown opened up at Christmas now others didn't other churches opted to do it all online but some churches did a booking system and it seemed to have worked quite well. Now many priests worked flat out at Christmas with additional masses and all of that but they so they have had a system some of the churches have had systems like that in place before and it certainly has worked 1850 John Paul taking your calls you can text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103 Court today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group want great advice you know who to talk to cmig.ie thank you to Audrey who's just to uh, 
uh, WhatsApp on, on passports to say my son applied at the beginning of March online for his passport and he already has had it back. So they seem to be randomly doing some passports. So you can be lucky enough that your application will go through online and it will be processed and like Audrey's son, you will have it back. So to Kevin, whose passport is up in May, it might be worth just filling it in online and you could be one of the lucky ones. Thank you, Audrey, for your text to 0862 103 103. Now, when we discuss the possible lifting of restrictions, one area that our listeners seem to constantly talk about is the need to reopen hairdressers and barbers shops. But other listeners are pointing out that hairdressing is going on within the black economy, which is very unfair on those hairdressers and barbers who are abiding by all of the lockdown rules. One such hairdresser is Caroline Bell, who runs the hair salon in Cove. Good morning to you, Caroline. Good morning, Patricia. And you're welcome to the programme. Are you, as a hairdresser, somebody in the industry, are you very aware of other hairdressers working on the quiet? Yes, it, it, it would be well known within the industry that there is a shadow economy happening right now and it is booming. Is it more so on this lockdown than previous lockdowns? I think this lockdown, I think people really have COVID fatigue now. And yeah, I think the whole we're in it together has kind of fallen apart. So it does seem to be more so in this lockdown. And I know even only a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a listener who works in retail, in not retail, yeah, in a supermarket. And she said that it's very obvious that people, when they come in to do their shopping, that their hairs have been professionally done. And she was making the point that she she hadn't seen that on previous lockdowns. But it seems to be very, very obvious at this time around. And then your own customers, are they ringing you to say, would Caroline, will you ever do my hair? I suppose more so in the first lockdown, I would have had people approach me to do their hair. But I think at this stage, most people know my stand. I would be... I, I would be very compliant and if Nefis deem it unsafe to do hair at the minute then I would go with that and um, so this time around no but I do get lots of calls every day from my clients looking for help to manage their hair at home and I am more than delighted to help them that way Well done um, Were you ever tempted to say to hell if everybody else is doing it sure I might as well do it no, that would that would never tempt me, to be honest. Um, you know, my one of my sayings always is, if a doctor is hooking you up onto a ventilator, he will not care what colour your hair is. So I would be very... I, I wouldn't allow myself to. Well done, well, well done. Are you afraid, though, that you may lose customers because of this? I suppose, Patricia, yes. We are going to lose some customers from this. Um, now, shadow economy has always been happening within the industry. So, look, I mean, it's something we will bounce back from. I do think people respect salons who are following restrictions at the moment. So, you know, we're not going to lose in the end, really. Mm, mm. And have you spotted any of your your customers when you're out and about who very obviously have had their hairs done? Um, <laughs> I suppose... <laughs> I have, I have, and it's kind of unspoken between us. But look, I mean, who am I to judge anybody? I don't participate in it, and I can't judge anybody who does. That's not for me, that's for revenue to police, really, not me. And when you say this shadow economy, what I mean, I'm assuming hairdressers are not bringing people into their salon because I mean if you've got a salon in a very public area it'll be very obvious if there's somebody inside getting their hair done. They're going, are they going into people's houses? 
Um, I suppose I can't speak for them. I can only assume that, yes, perhaps that's how they are getting their hair done. They're getting it done somewhere. So I assume they're going into houses. Yeah, it's yeah, and they're and they're just and it's happening with barbers, um, uh, barber shops as well. Now, in your own particular case, I, I read in the paper you gave up your COVID payment. Yes, I did. I gave up my COVID payment and all my grants because I just decided to be totally proactive during this and maybe to work on my business. So I've taken to working online and I'm giving hair advice online through Instagram and I sell my products online so that people can look after their own hair at home at the moment and that is booming so as much as there is a shadow economy going on there is so many people looking after their own hair at home at the moment and what 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 can we do at home to look after our own hair well I get up every morning I go on Instagram and I wash my hair and I show people how to shampoo their hair how to blow dry their hair I think by making an effort every day with our hair it'll mentally make us feel better and it takes our mind off maybe the roots we have root touch-ups that we can retail to the public we have colour masks that we can retail to the public and all these little things just cheer us up in the morning I, I truly believe get up in the morning throw on the face do the hair and you're set up for a great day well, well done. And the box colour that you can get in the supermarket, do you say to people, keep away from them? Do you know what? Now, professionally, I would always have said to avoid them. Right now, I think it is so much safer to buy a box colour than to engage in shadow economy. Yeah. Um, I much rather advise my clients on box colours at the moment. And look, we can fix everything when we go back. You know, there, there's no big deal on that. We'll sort it all. And it's much safer. And I think we'll all get back to work quicker if the shadow economy stops because we won't be spreading this virus. So I would encourage box colours right now, to be honest. And you're right about spreading it because even yesterday when Neffert were giving the the daily briefing and they were talking about the increase in cases, the biggest increase in cases has been passed around in households and that's people going into a house. Now, I know they used the example of somebody going in for a cup of coffee, but it could easily be somebody going in to do somebody's hair. And if they... And nobody knowingly goes in with COVID, but if they go in with COVID and then they go into somebody else's house and we're wondering how it's spreading from house to house. It's, you know, it's... Yeah, like in a salon environment, it's a safe environment. It is controlled. Our our salons are sterile. We control numbers coming in. Everything is sterilised. And um, I think when you're going in and out of homes, then it's not as safe and it's not as sterile and it's not as controlled. And a big problem within the hairdressing industry is our hairdryers are blowing the air around, which if you're breathing out even you know, if you're not wearing a mask, if you're that comfortable in home, um, it's going to spread it more. So I think, you know, hair done in a controlled environment is perhaps OK. I don't know. Neff, it seems unsafe at the minute, so we will run with that. But um, definitely it is safer in a salon environment. And many people have pointed out that when you were allowed to open, I mean, I don't remember there being huge cases of no. outbreaks linked to hairdressing salons. No, I think within the industry here in Ireland, there was only seven reported cases within the hair and beauty industry. For the whole of the country? For the whole of the country. Yeah, salons were so safe. 97% of clients who attended salons whilst we were open said that it was the safest place that they felt they had entered. 
So, like, salons have always been hygienic, have always been sterile environments, and we have upped that now. So it is a very safe and sterile environment. Yeah, everybody wearing masks and you would everybody spaced away from each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. think. I'd, and then when people who need a good haircut, um, Caroline, yeah. do, do, you, do you say <laughs> stay away from the scissors? Era, look, come here. At the minute, I wouldn't judge anybody. If you need to cut your hair, absolutely. I have tutorials on my own. Do you? Showing people how to manage their fringe. Um, mainly the fringe. Stay away from the rest of it. But yeah. look, if you need the fringe out of the eyes, like, I, yeah, I'd show people how to do things like that and just make it more bearable at the moment. But look, realistically, if we're all following guidelines, we shouldn't be going anywhere anyway. So yeah. really, is, is your hair that much of an issue? You know, right now, I don't know. But look, if it's bothering people, take the scissors to it and we'll sort it all out when we get back. There's okay. no problem. Well done, well done. And the the longer, though, we remain closed, Caroline, the longer this this um, shadow economy will flourish. Isn't, isn't that the case? I think, you know, the whole shadow economy is so counterproductive at the minute. These are people who want you know, our industry opened but to be continuing with it in a shadow economy is spreading it and it it is so counterproductive I think if we all got back in this together I don't know do we need to get back out clapping do we need to start lighting candles again do we need to get all back together and if we just really worked hard at this for a few weeks we could all get back to it and it would be amazing and life would return to some kind of normality and just one other issue then with this shadow economy are you fearful that when you are back up and running that some hairdressers you're going to have complaints about your prices because obviously if somebody's going into somebody's kitchen to do their hair they're doing it at a much cheaper price Mm -hmm. because they don't have all of the overheads you hairdressers could have an issue couldn't they have a problem there Yes, absolutely. I think they're devaluing our trade, really. Um, It's very easy for somebody to do hair cheaper at home when you've got no fixed costs, you've got no bills, you've no insurance, which is a massive issue for anybody doing hair in the shadow economy now without insurance. And I think when we get back, hair salons are the hub of communities and we support everything that goes on within communities, whether that's your coffee mornings, your school fundraisers, everything like that. So it's all these things that we need our salons to to be open. We have to appreciate the prices. We we keep our prices as low as we can, but we have a lot of overheads as well. And we do like to support local, we support our local economies. So I think it's it's so important to support your salon when they do open or any small business when they open to keep our small towns and our communities alive. Well said, well said. And how can people find you on Instagram if they haven't already found you, Caroline? <laughs> I'm thehairsalon.ie and you will find me washing my hair every day there and giving <laughs> loads of hints. Well done, well done. Yeah. That's terrific, that's terrific. Listen, it was a pleasure uh, speaking to you, Caroline. Uh, stay safe and, and hopefully sooner rather than later You'll be back up and running at the hair salon in Cove. But thanks for talking to us. Thanks. Good morning to you. you. Bye-bye. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. And on hairdressers following our chat with uh, Caroline Bell, hi Trish, the one thing you do when you go into the dentist is take off your mask. You don't do that when you're at the hairdresser. Surely it is much safer, says Anne, to be at the hairdresser. And another listener says it would be way more important for hairdressers to open and it would end this 
shadow economy. All the cleaning that goes on in these hairdressers and many of the salons, the smaller ones, only allowing one person in at a time. It was way, way safer when they were open. Thank you for your text now. And as the April 5th review date for restrictions moves closer, official figures show the COVID-19 is thriving in some counties, but has almost been crushed in other areas, including here in Cork. So is it time for the government to end blanket restrictions and go for more regional or local lockdowns? Social Democrat TD for West Cork, Holly Carnes, joins me to discuss this further. Good morning to Holly. Good morning, Patricia. And you are welcome. Now, there are parts of your own constituency in West Cork that has almost zero COVID. Should we be treated the same as the counties that have much higher COVID cases? I don't think so. I think um, it's something that should be really looked at, the regional lockdown. So it was in the original um, living with COVID strategy, and I and the Social Democrats supported that. But for some unknown reason, uh, since Christmas, it hasn't been utilised at all. You know, we saw the, the wave of cases. There was just a national approach. But it's so clear, Patricia, I think everybody knows this, that the public will is waning. So, like, during the first lockdown, it, when I was on the way up to Dublin, it seemed like I was the only person on the motorway. And now you'd see traffic jams in any town and village nearly on a Sunday. So for one, when clusters arise in an area, a regional response is more appropriate than a national one. And for two, if, for example, Cork, due to its very low infection rate, and well done everyone, um, if we were able to reopen, for example, outdoor dining mm. because of that low infection rate, that would be an incentive for other areas to do the same. But instead, people are making sacrifices for what feels like no reward. And I think people need some light at the end of the tunnel, something to work towards. And that regional approach would give us all that thing to work towards. So we think about priorities, like, for example, keeping our schools open is the thing that springs to mind for most people. If that was based on a number of cases on a regional basis, I think we would see stronger efforts at a regional level, you know, to keep those numbers down. And then Another priority, for example, particularly when we're talking about an area like Cork South West, is our hospitality sector. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a massive employer. And the last thing that sector needs, I think, is to reopen, to have, you know, a so-called meaningful summer and then to have to close again. That just, it's not feasible for businesses to go through this again. And of course, we have to take into consideration that, you know, tourism from other areas is really important. But when we weigh that up against the potential of another lockdown afterwards, I think we need to really consider that. So unfortunately, obviously, we still don't have, you know, an effective testing and tracing system or effective mandatory quarantining or properly resourced public health teams, which could have allowed a national reopening of society and our economy, which would have been great. And I think everybody would have been in favour of that. But we are where we are. And as a result, I'm in favour of looking, I'm in favor of looking at a regional approach. Yeah. And I mean, so many of our listeners talk about the five kilometre limit and how restrictive that is. I mean, at least, and with figures so low in Cork, wouldn't it be great if within Cork we were allowed to travel around the county? Absolutely. And like when, you know, you consider a lot of people's 5K, for example, mine, a lot of that is ocean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And anyone in a rural area. Yeah. 5K is very, is much more severe than in the, if you're in the middle of the city. Exactly. And I think this is one of the things that I think we would be better at maybe taking a regional approach if we had a properly resourced public health teams. So they're concerned with preventing disease and promoting and improving health in society. I hadn't heard much about public health doctors before the pandemic. But they have a key role in pandemics by looking at data and making assessments on interventions. So they're based in different regions. So, for example, we have Cork and Kerry HSE Regional Group. 
But like on primetime two weeks ago, doctors are saying that Ireland's public health system still doesn't have the resources it needs and that's one year into a pandemic. So this might be one of the reasons that there is, has been a reluctance to implement um, a regional strategy that the government actually had in the in the original strategy for living with COVID, that we don't actually have the public health doctors. So like the latest information I have from February shows that Cork and Kerry has five public health doctors trying to maintain you know, 24-7, 365 days of the year pandemic response for a population of 700,000 people. And a huge area. Exactly. So I think, you know, there's loads of other problems in terms of like why we don't have uh, more public health doctors and a better public health uh, system because their their pay isn't as good as other doctors. And, you know, the the consultants, um, it's it's not like them. So I suppose there's loads of things we need to do. But one of the things we need to do in general to manage this pandemic is to fully resource our public health teams. And I mentioned other things there about an effective testing and tracing system and quarantining. But if we could do that, if we could properly resource our public health teams and work on a regional basis, I think for one, it would keep cases down because I think people need something to work towards. And if we're working towards keeping our schools open at this number, opening, for example, outdoor dining at this number, and then helping our hospitality sector to stay open by keeping cases down, that gives us some kind of incentive. And I think that's what we all need. Yeah, and I think at this stage, it's an incentive. And I think people need some sense of hope about possible dates. It's the one thing a number of our listeners will refer to what's happening in the UK. Now, I know their vaccination is very different, but they seem to have a very firm roadmap. They know of dates. They know in two weeks' time what they'll hopefully be doing in another two weeks' time. We don't seem to have any sort of like sense of hope here. I know, and a lot of that is due to a lack of transparency, unfortunately. So, like in relation to vaccines, there is no transparency in the in the vaccine program, and I think it's really important to ensure public confidence and you know and the effective rollout of vaccines. So, for example, the HSE set a target of 1.1 million vaccines to be administered by the end of March, but current rates of vaccination are half of what is needed for us to reach that target. The real data from two weeks ago showed that although it was announced that 10,000 people at very high risk of severe disease would be vaccinated, only 4,156 people actually were. So the public should be informed about the forecasts and timelines for each cohort, and especially with subgroups within the over 70s. Um, And, you know, we also need carers and other essential services um, to be prioritised, but we just don't have that clarity. Mm. And without being able to see those figures, you know, it's difficult for us to forecast anything and the government don't give us any actual, you know, steady forecasts. And in yeah. terms of, you know, getting the, the vaccine into the country, um, I know there's a lot of criticism on government and ordinarily people would see my job as to criticise them. I don't think that's fair. You know, a lot of that happens at a European level. There's no point in throwing sticks at the government for that because there's only so much that they can do. But what they can do is provide us all with the information that they have to provide clarity and to give us confidence in their plan. I think that's really important, something that is really missing. And then we see announcements coming in, you know, through leaks in parliamentary party meetings and through leaks in the paper, instead of, you know, a proper coherent engagement strategy with the general public to bring us all along, to instill confidence and, you know, to give everybody something to work towards. And it might might, might just help with this COVID fatigue that absolutely is uh, setting in. Uh, Holly, I have to leave it there. Listen, thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on the programme. Thanks, Patricia. Good morning to you. That is West Cork uh, Social Democrat TD, Holly Kern. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Tomorrow, Friday, the 26th of March is 
uh, Daffodil Day on behalf of the Irish Cancer Society in partnership with Boots and it is probably their most important one yet because the Irish Cancer Society can't be on the streets so they need your help more than ever and this is the second year that they haven't been able to go out and sell the silk daffodils and the fresh daffodils on the street so they're asking people to support Daffodil Day, help the Irish Cancer Society to provide the crucial services to adults and children with cancer and to their families and you can do that by going online to donate and you donate online at cancer.ie So please keep the Irish Cancer Society in in mind, especially tomorrow it officially being a daffodil day for this year. Now we've had a number of calls and texts in across the week about the fuel allowance and when is the fuel allowance going to end and is there any talk of extending the fuel allowance this year because this time last year was around this week last year where it was announced that there was a four week extension to the fuel allowance and one of the main reasons, if I remember rightly, that it was extended last year was for older people who were cocooning at the time. And it was felt that the older people and the older people are in the main pensioners are in the main recipients of the fuel allowance. So it was decided because we had had a kind of a cold spell and there was a lot of vulnerable people cocooning this time last year and they were inside in their homes, weren't able to get out and about. So that was one of the main reasons that there was an extension of four weeks to the fuel allowance. But there is no word of an extension this year. I know up to last month in February, there was calls from some of the opposition opposition parties looking for an extension to the fuel allowance and in particular they were looking for the fuel allowance to be extended to people who were on the pandemic the pop uh, payment but nothing came of any of that so that means that this year's fuel allowance will end those that get paid weekly on Friday the 9th of April and as of now there is no word of an extension 1850 and we will keep an eye if, they, if anything comes anything it gets announced we certainly will bring it to you 1850 333 now we were talking about masses and this push by some of the backbenchers within the Fianna Fáil party calling on the Taoiseach to try to ease the restrictions around allowing people to go into mass and uh, opening up the churches again I know churches are open for private prayer but allowing people to go in and to be present when mass has been said with restrictions in place well a listener has contacted us to say hiya we are waiting on a date for first holy communion for this year. The priest can't give us a date. He's guessing that it may be May but our big worry is little girl in the house to make communion and we haven't got a dress. Now we did contact one Irish business that sell Holy Communion dresses to be told that they have been informed there won't be any Holy Communions this year according to their information yet there are businesses in the city offering people appointments and dress fittings and selling uh, dresses. Some areas close to me, some villages close to me have been given dates for their first Holy Communion masses for this year. It's awful when we don't have a date as I'm nervous about going and getting a dress fitting we'd have to go outside of our 5k in order to have our daughter fitted for the dress and then we could get a dress to discover there isn't a date or they're not going to do it in the summertime you know they might give a date later on in the year or they may decide to suspend First Holy Communion Masses completely this year and put them all on to next year and then you could end up with a dress obviously that's not going to fit I know the last that we heard from the bishops was back in February when their advice 
to parents was not to go out and buy outfits for either First Holy Communion or for confirmation because they really are unsure what is going to happen. I know last year communion masses and confirmations went on but they were going on right across the year. In some areas the First Holy Communion Mass and the confirmations didn't happen at all. They're still waiting to happen, expecting to happen this year and, and they still don't know what's what's going on. So you're just going to have to wait and I know and I can sense your anxiety that if you do suddenly get a date what if, particularly for the little girls what, and I suppose for the little boys as well but some of the boys make it in uniform so it isn't as difficult but for the little girls and we all know having gone through that ourselves, those of us that made our first early communion we know what a special day that is getting you know the, the fishing of the dress the wearing of the dress and all of that so yeah so I can I can sense your anxiety but all I can say to you is you're not alone there are many many other parents in the very same boat so we'll put it out there to see what our other parents are doing are some taking the risk and going off and getting fittings and having dresses ready in the hope that you might get a date in May or June for First Holy Communion are are people taking the advice that was given by the bishops not to buy any communion dresses or outfits and the same for confirmations because the bishops can't give a date as to when and if those ceremonies will go ahead this year. Your thoughts welcomed on that. 1850-333-103. Anne says, I can't understand why people want churches to be opened and to be allowed back into Mass. I've said it before, God is everywhere. The church has to be cleaned after people go in there. And who do these people think end up doing that cleaning? Maybe if they were asked to pay up front and then paid professional cleaners to go in and clean the churches, maybe that could work Put their money where their mouth is. Kind regards. That is from Anne. Can't understand why people are shouting about masses. Bridget in Killa said, my friends who attend mass in Middleton at the time when 50 were allowed into the church, they had to make a booking for a mass. They had to do it online. I'm from Killa, so I attended the church in Killa. But I know of people in Middleton, where obviously it's a bigger population, more people wanting to attend. There was a three-week waiting list on some of the Sunday Masses. So the booking system isn't always when somebody was saying that that's what they're doing in London and in New York. It doesn't always work. Whereas Dermot in Yall says many churches did online in East Cork with the limitations supplied and how many could be in the church. But Dermot said what absolutely amazed me was the demand for people who wanted a ticket to book a place to go into the church services, given the fact that prior to COVID, you'd be lucky on a Sunday to have 50 people attending some of the masses. They used to keep the side doors closed in one church that I know, says Dermot, to encourage people to sit in the middle aisles because the crowd was so small so as to make it look a little bit bigger they'd put everybody into the middle this obviously was pre the pandemic and suddenly says uh, Dermot now everybody wants to go to Mass and there's a big fight over it maybe booking Mass in the future is the way uh, to go maybe it'll get people back into the church well you know people will say maybe maybe because of Covid people who have fallen away from church maybe people are finding their religion again could that be the reason people are have a calling to go back into prayer it could it could well be that thank you for your uh, text or your call to us uh, Dermot 1850 Hi Patricia People need hope during lockdown for the future They need something to look forward to uh, Maybe something radical as debt write-off in some cases are an easing of relationship laws and vows I don't quite 
quite see what you're getting at there, Martin. But people do need incentives and they need incentives for the future. Uh, thank you, Neil. Martin in West Cork. I think that was the point that Holly Kearns was making, that people need some sense of hope going forward. And if we knew that something, that if we bring figures down that COVID cases go down to such a number that this is going to happen. Like I made the point of what's happening in the UK with their roadmap. People have exact dates on when things are expected to open up all going well. And I think people just want that. It's a little bit of hope for the future. Whereas we're going into our fourth month of lockdown and people kind of that sense of is it ever going to end? There is a real sense about that. And Frank in Ballinlock is taking me to task this morning. Thank you, Frank, for your text saying, Hi, Patricia, will you please pronounce COVID correctly? It's not COVID, it's COVID. There's a D on the end, not a T. We're talking about it now for over a year and it's important to people and especially broadcasters call it out correctly, which is what it is. Thanking you. That's with me and my locks from Frank in Ballinlock. Thank you, Frank. I didn't even realise I was pronouncing COVID wrong. I suppose I say it so much I'm probably racing through it and saying COVID instead of COVID. I will try and do my very best to remember the D and not the T. Or maybe I'd be probably better off than saying coronavirus rather than say the COVID bit wrong. Thank you for your text, Frank. Hi, Patricia, this is a West Cork listener. Ireland, we are a laughing stock. The UK are laughing at us. It's embarrassing to be associated with this country at the moment. Why do I make this statement, says this West Cork listener? All to do with vaccination. We need to vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. If the EU say, oh, sorry, we can't give you any more, then why is our government just saying, oh, well, such is life. We need to tell the EU, give us the vaccines or we'll take legal action. Well done to the UK for escaping the shackles of the EU, says the West Cork listener. And uh, not that the EU needs to be defended and I'll be the first one to criticise the EU for their handling of vaccinations. But in, I come in defence of the EU. It's not that they're holding vaccinations and saying we're not going to give them to you Ireland or we don't have any for you. They, they literally don't have any for us. They are, as soon as the supply comes in, they, ha- they divvy up the vaccines and they're sent out per head of population, which I have to say I think is the correct way to do it because if you were if you were giving it to the bigger powers or the people with more money or the countries with more money, then a little country like us would end up with no vaccines at all. So I think the initial plan was to buy in bulk for all of the EU countries and then, depending on how many people live in your country, per head of population, you get so many vaccines every time the order comes in. The EU were not to know that there was going to be this massive supply issue. So... They're doing the best that they can. And listen, we know there's so many fights and arguments going on about vaccination supply and the UK are racing ahead because they're getting their hands on so much more vaccines ahead of us and certainly ahead of the EU. And I know I mentioned this yesterday. There's there's a real row uh, brewing between the EU and uh, Britain. But now it seems they have agreed to share vaccines after a bit of brinkmanship between uh, both sides eased a little bit yesterday. 
there was a, a declaration to work together to keep supplies flowing as there's a global, of course, scramble for doses. It isn't just the EU and it isn't just Britain. Every country in the world is scrambling to get their hands on uh, vaccines. So there was a joint statement yesterday that said, we are all facing the same pandemic and the third wave makes cooperation between the EU and the e- e- the United Kingdom even more important. And of course, that joint statement came after Brussels announced plans yesterday to tighten control on exports to some countries. And that was raising concerns in Britain that their vaccine delivery would be hit as they have to rely on the EU because the EU is their main source, particularly for the Pfizer vaccine. Now, a standoff over the AstraZeneca doses loomed between the bloc and their former member of the UK because, of course, AstraZeneca is made by a British-Swedish pharmaceutical company and they drastically have under-delivered the AstraZeneca to the EU. So both sides were eyeing up a stock of vaccine supply which has been made in a factory in the Netherlands. Now there was tensions, of course, when the Italian authorities discovered 29 million AstraZeneca doses at a manufacturing site near Rome. Now that obviously is raising suspicions that somebody within AstraZeneca are stockpiling the vaccine but the company announced that those doses suddenly when it was discovered they said oh yeah those 29 million they are going to be delivered shortly to the EU and to developing countries so that could be some good news uh, for us here in Ireland. There is of course fierce competition for doses but there's also fierce competition for key vaccine components globally and governments fear that we could slow pharmaceutical supply chains if countries start putting up too many barriers and if countries start saying well we're not going to export unless you give us X, Y and Z then the other country will say well I'm not going to give you Y that you need in order to make your X, Y and Z and you could see it would just get really really messy so this joint statement was issued yesterday in which Britain and the EU declared they will seek a reciprocal beneficial relationship and that obviously has taken the heat off as the EU leaders prepare to meet there's going to be video conference calls today and uh, tomorrow but nonetheless the European Commission is expected to push ahead with a tightening of export controls that would allow it to refuse export permits for vaccine shipments if they're going into countries that are not allowing vaccines to be exported in return to the EU are if they're going into countries that have a higher rate of vaccination and the obvious countries that stand out there would be the UK and the US because both of those countries are not allowing any exports to go to the EU and both of those countries have a much higher rate of vaccinations than we have here uh, in this country or indeed across anywhere in uh, Europe. So that row I think is still going, is, is still brewing but it's good to see that they seem to have come to some kind of res- reciprocal arrangement. 1850-333-103 John Paul taking your calls you can text our WhatsApp 0862-103-103 Jobs A dental nurse is required it's for a maternity cover starting in June that's in the Glanmire area Walsh Construction that's in Bandon they're looking for architectural technician mainly office based but some travel to sites will also be required a general operative preferably with a construction background is required for work mostly in the Munster and Leinster areas an office slash finance manager required to work in Liscarra you need to have experience in SAGE 
budgets and payroll. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Now we constantly hear on radio and on TV from health experts about how difficult this pandemic is on our health system, but especially on the frontline workers. But we don't often hear the voices of those nurses. This morning, I'm joined by Mary Lyons, who's a nurse at Mayo University Hospital, who wrote a really moving, powerful piece about the desperate plight of nurses in the Mayo News. And uh, Mary joins me. Good morning to Mary. Good morning, Patricia. And can I, I'm, I'm very well. And can I just say, it, it's, it really is a powerful piece. And if you ever decide to give up nursing, you'd make a fine journalist. <laughs> it's a really well-written piece. Just explain the background of when you sat down and actually wrote that piece. Okay, well, I only wrote it literally a week or possibly a few days before um, I put it in the Mayor News. I have a, a, a lovely tradition of being impulsive, and but it, it, the, the act of writing and sending it was impulsive. But I'd been thinking about our situation for a long time, and it was after a shift, a usual long shift. You know, you leave in the morning in the dark. I leave my house at half six, and sometimes I'm not coming back till half ten at night. And I was thinking about the day, and I was thinking about the the, the night duty girls and lads that came on that night. You could see their faces because the place was jammered in the emergency department where I work. And I, I just, you know, you could see them thinking, oh, just dread. So, so people coming into work feeling dread. And I thought, this is, this is normal for us to have that feeling when we're starting our, um, our day and our night. And I thought, this cannot be right. This can't be a way to work. So I started to just write from the heart. And what I didn't expect was that that went straight to the hearts of, of, of any nurse that read it. So it was shared, not even by me. I put it in the Mayo News and I knew that it was maybe an act of a little bit of recklessness. But I just thought, look, we, we just, um, we have to stop. We have to stop doing what we're doing and saying nothing and just putting up with it, you know. So yeah. that's and it why wasn't, I wrote it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't reckless. It needed to be said. And I think people need to uh, read it as well because it's such a powerful piece and I want to talk to you about some of the points. I mean, you make the point that before the pandemic even arrived, nurses were exhausted. Just talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think I think that that was actually my point of the whole article because I wanted to remind people that, you know, a, a pandemic is obviously a really unique situation and of course every one of us, and we're not the only ones, we have so many people um, in this country, who have had to really put the, the shoulder to the wheel for the pandemic. So it's not about the pandemic. And I didn't want to write about COVID, you know, because we've all, that's what it's, what's the central stage at the moment. I wanted to remind people that for the last 10 or 15 years, and some nurses are telling me 20 years, this has been going on. Nurses have been overworked and burnt out for a long, long time. Um, so, and they, they also have been disillusioned because of our culture, and I've talked about that a little bit, of this culture in hospitals where we dare not speak out. So nurses are not really encouraged to, to speak their mind. We don't speak to kind of upper management. And that has, that has made people feel that, that they're completely disempowered 
that they have no voice, that they're not listened to, that they will never be changed. How can there be change when nobody ever comes and actually asks what they think the change should be? So um, that is that is the issue for us. So, so of course, we, we're, everybody is going to work hard in a pandemic. And we're going to put up with things that we would normally put up with, and we accept that. But unfortunately, we've been doing this for 10 to 20 years. Um, we've been doing it in every department in the communities. Public health nurses are telling me, how, how, you know, how what their experience is. The ICUs, the emergency department where I work, the medical, everywhere. So this, this is not new for us. But I think we felt then the pandemic has just literally showcased for us that when this is over and they've seen, OK, these guys, now, now they'll put up with 15 patients or 20 patients. We kind of realised, you know, we're just going to be going, you know, doing this um, in perpetuity. So it's time. It's time that people know um, what we're going through. And yeah, and it's time for nurses to say, halt, we're not going yeah. to do this anymore. And it's time for that upper management, for people to listen to what's yeah. happening on the ground. Because, you know, you speak about nurses and, and I certainly would have friends of mine who who, were, who are nurses who would tell me, you, you, they don't get breaks. The shift never seems to end on time. Yeah. And I wonder, is that part of the problem? That you're a very stoic bunch of people. You're not going to leave a patient that needs to be care, cared for. So you work on regardless. That's, and is that's, that that's, that's part exactly of the problem? Right. Yes, yeah. Uh, you see, the problem is, it's the nature of the work. So, you know, if you're a teacher and a class ends, you can down tools. Um, but when our shift ends, and this is what happens in the emergency department, so if we have a packed emergency department, um, and, and so we have a, a gang of nurses who are arriving, and then the, the clinical nurse manager is passing on, you know, there's a, there's a handover report. Now, when she has to report on 25 trolleys, along with a huge number of people, somebody is in resource, and <clears throat> there's loads of minor injuries waiting out in the waiting room, the actual department itself is heaving. So she has to report on every single one of those patients so that those nurses know this is what we're taking over, so that they can care for them. They know where the priorities are. They know who needs what. So that takes a long time when it's that crowded. So that could take up to an hour. So those of us who are absolutely, as you say, we haven't had a break since, since our, our, our one o'clock dinner, and this is now maybe half eight at night, we are not going to leave that department until that handover is, is finished. Because we can't leave. Those patients' needs don't stop in that hour. So we have to continue. More ambulances are coming in during that time. Maybe another resource comes in at that time. Patients need to be changed or somebody needs a cup of tea or nurse, um, I, I'm in pain. So we continue. And often that report goes on and on and on. So you're supposed to finish at half eight and you start at half seven that morning. And it's half nine and it's quarter to ten. And sometimes, you know, and you're still there. And then you leave. So that is, the, you know, the, we can't... Sprint out the door, yeah, uh, like yeah, that, yeah. The people yeah. who work nine to five, five o'clock comes. People leave their desk yeah. and, and walk away. That certainly yeah. isn't isn't the nature of your job. Do you get paid no. extra when you stay on then for the extra couple of hours? Not at all. No. no. Now, it, no, we don't. Now, I, I work through an agency, so to be honest, I often forget because it's so commonplace. I, you know, my shifts go in at a certain um, time, and I forget to say, or I worked an extra hour, or I didn't get breaks, but. Um, no, the, the people who work full time, no, they, they don't get extra for that. And um, do you go home at night and worry that I forgot something? I meant yes, to do that. You yeah, do, yeah, yeah. yeah That's hard. <laughs> it is. You go home, uh, or what happens to me? I sit in my coat 
and I have two I have two daughters, twenty one and eighteen, and uh, I'm very close to my ex husband, who's often here rattling around. And I'll spend half an hour going, blah, 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 you know, actually just emoting on on the day. Now, n- not bits in, but just and this happened in, because there's a lot of there's a lot of human drama in in a day in A and E or in hospital or whatever. So some people are quiet. Some people will have a bottle of wine. Some people will go and eat three bars of chocolate. Some will go home and talk for a half an hour before they take their coat off. So we all have different ways of of coping. But the, the one thing as well I want to say, Patricia, is that I'm showcasing the plight of nurses, but at the at the centre of all of this is our patients. The, the reason we want us to be looked after is that so that our patients can be looked after because it's, it's, an, it's an actual disgrace the way our patients are treated at the moment. You know, when, when I go to work in the morning and I walk along this gauntlet, this corridor, and I see all of these elderly people half hanging out of trolleys that have been there all night, and I know what it's like at night time. It's busy. There'd be lots of crashing trolleys going up and down. and So, you know, they won't have slept. There's a big draft that kind of funnels through the corridor. Um, you, you know, f- funny things happen. You, you, I, I had two old fellas who one put on the other fellas trousers because the, the trolleys are so close they were rattling around in their plastic bags um you, you know it's all supposed to be um with covid everything was supposed to be managed two meters apart etc should that should that's not happening so all of these people are uh, when i say strewn i'm not being melodramatic strewn around the department um no privacy you know we don't have disabled bathrooms where people can go you can wheel them in there you'd have to take them into the resource and put them on a commode in this clean clinical environment it's just it's just a dreadful way to treat people and especially people at the end of their lives so that's that's one of the reasons why you know we're showcasing this it's not just about us it's it's about the people at the center of our healthcare system which is every single patient who deserves privacy attention care um, all of those things. And because of COVID, uh, Mary, visitors, people are not allowed to be in with their loved ones. So therefore, yeah. the role of the nurse becomes even more important. I mean, everybody trusts the nurse anyway. But if yeah. they haven't even got a family member around advocating, you almost become their advocate as well. Oh, you do, definitely. You, you, you 100% do. And, you know, nurses will always... You know, if you came in and you're an old person, Patricia, into my department, um, even though we have to be fast, like I'd have your clothes whipped off over your head and the ECG leads on in two seconds, but at the same time, I'm talking to you, I'm asking you, you know, why you're there, but I'm also asking you, and, you know, how are you getting on at home? Who's at home with you? So we always learn. A nurse will always learn. It's part of your assessment. What is the home circumstances? And how do you manage? Who buys your groceries? Do, do Do you drive? Um, how do you how do you walk? Do you normally walk with a stick? So we get all this information. We, we we understand and we learn very quickly what their support is. So often you'll have a situation where the doctors who are there, and, and believe me, they work awfully hard. You know, of course they do. Um, but a, a medical doctor will come. They'll assess the patient who had maybe some kind of a faint or a fall. They might decide, look, at he's fine. We've had the CT and they're grand. Okay, Margaret, I'm going to send you home. And it's always the nurse that has to say. I'm sorry, doctor, she lives up in North Mayo on her own. And we know by now, you know, that she can't, she can't walk at the moment. She's really poor on her feet. It's always the nurse that has to, has to tell them well that. Done. Well done, well done, well uh, yeah. done. Yeah, and so, so like, that's a feature of our job. And, and the other yeah. thing with, with COVID, uh, Mary, let's not forget, you, you've lost members. Members have died because they went to work. Yeah, 
yeah. And not only that, but I, like I know, you know, so many people, dozens of people in my hospital who got COVID. One nurse had long COVID. So 10 months she was out of the hospital. Others, their partners got sick, ended up in hospital. Partners who had, you know, vulnerabilities. Um, their, their entire children, the family of children got sick. Now, you know, thankfully, not badly. But, but you know, so people went to work. And, you know, I was talking to an ICU nurse during the week. And she says they ended up um, being morticians in ICU. She, did they have, this is up in the Dublin hospital. Because the morticians wouldn't come into the ICU. So they ended up, you know, dressing the patient in their suit, um, putting them into the body bags. Like, can you imagine? The nurses are somehow expected to do these things. We're allowed to be up close to this. But other people, whether it's GPs or morticians or whatever, are somehow allowed to, to kind of stay away from, from that kind of proximity. So it's it's kind of a it's it's a value system. Why are we not valuing nurses the way we value other other members? Bernard says, "Well done to Mary for speaking up. Only for a nurse, my mother would have died on her own. This nurse stayed with her. Her shift was over, but she realized he, this nurse realized my mother was dying and stayed with." my mother we weren't allowed in because of COVID I can't speak highly enough says Bernard of uh, nurses thank you for that Bernard and just the fact that you work in an emergency department we don't hear about the trolley crisis anymore no. we used to have a daily thing about the numbers on trolleys yeah. is that all gone? It's, it's the most bizarre thing and that's what I wrote in my, my um, article you know the media used to blare yeah. about the, daily basis Daily, but every, every, I think I know one hospital and it's because they have a really good assistant director of nursing there who kind of moves things along very quickly. But the trolleys never went away, Patricia. They're there. But it's just that the media has forgotten about it because everything is about COVID. So the trolleys are there. They haven't gone away. And that's the point I was trying to make. Where is that attention? And, and because that's the attention back to the patient. Our patients are still being mistreated and we're not... In Syria, we are in Ireland, we're in a developed country. And now more than ever, with, with this pandemic and a virus that can infect one patient to another, why have we still got overcrowding? I mean, if, if all of these amazing resources can be applied, and pretty quickly, like it's amazing what was done when it, and the, the, you know, when it had to be, why, are we, why is it going on still? It's, um, it's, it's, it's dreadful. So, and, and you know... The sad thing is people aren't seeing it anymore. You know, when I walk past those trolley patients, I see people walking past, the, all the members of, of, you know, it's very much a thoroughfare in ED. And you see the doctors going past with the coffee and this is where, you know, I think we've forgotten. These are people who are just been here all night, all the day before and possibly all the night before. Human, human, yeah. no human beings, yeah. somebody's human mother, beings. someone's father, somebody's son, yeah. somebody's uh, daughter. You're yeah. fearful our young nurses won't put up with it and we will lose a lot of our young yeah. nurses. They'll, they'll go overseas, won't they? They will. They will. And they're fabulous. You know, I love to see the young ones coming in. Um, you know, we have a few in our department and they're so full of beans and they're so excited to learn. Um, we had three arrive and they're, they're, they're absolutely brilliant. Um, and they, they were, you could see their excitement they're in the emergency department but but very quickly they have gotten absolutely wrapped up in in the the kind of the grind of it all where the, where it's very hard to teach them because no one has time um you, you know now there, there is somebody assigned to teach them 
but it's just very difficult because sometimes they have to get get sucked back into the operations because it's, there's just too much going on. So it's very hard. To, it's very hard to learn in that environment. Um, yeah. You know, it's and the ratio of nurse to patient is much higher in this country than it is overseas, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is now. I mean, you know, there is a, a global n- nursing shortage. Um, we're not the only ones to have this problem, but um, our ratios are pretty dire at, at the moment, um, and like they're unconscionable. It's unconscionable to me and to all nurses to come in uh, and to be left with 15, 16 patients. Or one nurse told me yesterday she was left with 20 patients for the day, um, and, and sometimes management say, "Well, you have the healthcare assistants; they'll help you," but the healthcare assistants can't give all the intravenous drugs. They, they, they don't monitor uh, patients the way we do or notice that, the, you know, life-threatening things happening the way we do. Um, you know, they, they, they don't have the acres of paperwork. Every single thing that we do has to be documented. So sometimes we spend half our time just trying to write up on everything we've done. Um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time with doctors, following up on doctors. Can you come back and look at this CT? So th- there's a lot, um, you know, a, a poor old... Um, um, Sarah McInerney got in trouble with nurses for for using the word vocation because yes. um, a lot of nurses, they get exercised by that word. Now, I mean, I know that it's well meant and I, I don't really, but I do, basically they get exercised because this whole idea of the nurse, you know, having a vocation suggests that, that we're, you know, we're, we're lovely, we're angels gliding around our department. And you, and you will put up with anything because it's yeah, a vocation. Yeah, and, and we're, yeah. we're, we're plumping pillows and mocking fevered brows. But nurses have masters and specialties. Yeah, yeah. And, you yeah, know, it's they, a, they, yeah, it's a, massive It's a valid training. point. You know, that paperwork that you mentioned, Mary, is a lot of yeah. that unnecessary? Or does it have to be done? Oh, my God. It has become, like, we're, we're, we're like, there's an Amazonian forest worth of paperwork now. And I think, yeah, it, it's because somebody decided that to be completely safe in our practice and legal, we had to had to write absolutely everything down. So there's something like, oh, it must be an eight or nine page document that we have to fill in when somebody's admitted to a ward. Um, you know, that's like that to me is madness. And I know some of it has, has become a kind of a checklist. But, uh, you know, and nurses complain about this all the time. It, it's almost too much. Like, with no problem. Of course, we have to document everything we do because it's very important, number one, to pass on information to, to people coming on in the next shift. But we've gone overboard with that. Yeah, the amount of paperwork you do today compared to, say, when you first qualified has oh, probably definitely. quadrupled. Absolutely, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. What are the solutions, Mary? Well, look, I wrote an article. You know, that's all I did. And I'm just a job and nurse. Like, to me, my opinion would be twofold. That would be, first of all, from the kind of government and health service point of view, um, would be to absolutely to start the, uh, mandating nurse-patient ratios. The places that they've done it, it has really, really worked and it has had economic advantages for the, for the hospital. In other words, um, and it, it happens in the hospital. Now, I, I know the INMO have been blasting this for years to the government and they've been up to the earth just talking about this all the time and they finally got agreement on it. Um, and I think it was implemented in a couple of places in Dublin, Beaumont or somewhere, but it hasn't become the norm. And until we legislate, so in other words, you may not legally 
give a nurse more than whatever is decided for that specialty. Maybe in a medical ward, more than five patients. In another ward, it might be, you know, more than six. Um, and you may not go past that. Um, and nurses can refuse to take that extra patient because there is a, there, there's, there's clinical evidence, scientific evidence to show that every nurse you add to that ratio, um, mortality goes up, infections go up, patient uh, outcome goes down. You know, the, the, the science is completely out there. So we have to get behind ourselves and, and somehow really, pu- you know, push that, that, uh, that idea that, that uh, the more nurses we have, the, the better the treatment of the patient. So, so that's, one, that's one massive thing, and that would make a massive difference to our work conditions and, of course, more importantly, to the, to the welfare and the care that patients get. And then my second big bone is of contention, I think, is culture within the hospital. We have a culture of not opening our gobs. We just say nothing. We put up, as you say, this stoicism. We, we endlessly talk to each other at every break, and it goes on and on. Um, and we're, we're, not, we're not making our management, our upper management, and I mean the very upper management of our hospitals and our regional groups, we're not making them accountable. We're not saying to them, where is the recruitment plan? We want to know. You know, we can't keep working like this. We understand that if we come in to, and there's 15 patients, we can't walk home again. We can't do that. Of course we can't. But what we can do is say, <clears throat> we want to see a recruitment plan by this August. And if you don't um, produce the goods by whatever date, you know, give people obviously a chance, then we will not come in. If we, if we know that there's 15 patients, we're not going to come on duty. You know, there is power in the collective. And we just, we have to, we have to really be brave ourselves. You have to be listened to. You just, you have to be uh, listened to. Anne, one of our listeners says the the nurse talking to you is so correct that our young nurses won't stick the pace. My niece is a first year postgraduate. She works in an A&E department. She's burnt out already. Long days, no breaks and lots of abuse. Why would you be bothered, uh, says Anne. All right, Mary, I have to leave it there. All I can say to you is you're a credit to your, your profession and your patients are darn lucky to have somebody like you inside in the A and E uh, department. Uh, we wish you continued good health. Stay safe, uh, Mary, and thanks for joining us on the program. I really appreciated our chat. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you. Bye bye. That is Mary Lyons, wonderful, wonderful nurse uh, in the A and E department at uh, Mayo University uh, Hospital. And as I say, she wrote that article. It was simply entitled "Don't Let Us Drown." And it's got huge reactions and it got published last week in the Mayor News. 1850-333-103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text our WhatsApp 0862-103-103. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. You can see some great pet questions coming in for Jane. Can you keep those coming in to us, please? She'll join us after half past at 12. But a couple of people reacting to my interview with Mari, the nurse from Mayo, in the last hour, including one listener who says, please don't read out my name or my area, and that's fine. Says, Patricia, I'm listening to your interview with Mari, the nurse. And while I acknowledge the tremendous work done by nurses and having nothing but respect for every work, 
for every nurse I know, I am a healthcare assistant. And I was very disappointed that rather than acknowledging or appreciate the work we do and the part we play in the care of our patients, she dismissed us as not being able to monitor or observe the patients as well as nurses do. We are all aware that we are not as qualified as nurses or anywhere near it, but we do work hard and I hope that we are of more value to the team than Mary gives us credit for. Okay, that's one healthcare assistant. Thank you for that. And then another healthcare assistant is also picking up on what Mari had to say and says healthcare assistants are a vital part of caring for the sick and the elderly. We do personal care. We feed people who can't feed themselves. I have sat with the dying. I've held their hands until they passed. We are just as capable as others even though we don't hold a degree. And now I know Mari's off the line since those uh, comments came in. And can I just in her defence because I really don't think she meant it to come across as any direct criticism of the great work that healthcare assistants do. The point I think she was making at the time was that when they go to senior management who don't seem to have a clue what's going on on the ground and when they look for extra nurses for their shifts they're told, oh she'd be grand, you have healthcare assistants and she's just making the point that while healthcare assistants do a very important role they can't do everything that a nurse can do and can I go back to the, her article, that's the reason that we brought Mary onto the programme as we spotted this article that she wrote a really powerful article that she wrote in the Mayo News and one of the points she makes in it when she was talking about at the end of a shift being spat out at the end of the day with just about enough energy to drive you home her next sentence in the article is we crossed arms together and we staggered under the load sharing the trenches with other hard working colleagues doctors healthcare assistants, she actually names healthcare workers there, paramedics and porters, cleaners and clerks and all of the great people who make a hospital work. So she, you know, she very much acknowledges in her article, maybe it just came across in the way she phrased it to my question to her today, but I don't think in any way she's taken from the fantastic work and I, for one, would never take from the fantastic work of healthcare assistants. And I think that second uh, text in so many healthcare assistants since COVID-19 arrived have been the ones that have stayed with the dying because the nurses are literally too busy to be able to spend the time. They have to move on to the next patient because throughout the article that Mary wrote, she talks about that having to run literally from pillar to post, knowing that I should have given that patient pain relief or I should have checked on that patient. They may end up with bed sores because they need to be turned, but they're just simply running around so much. So the healthcare assistants fill in major, major gaps uh, there. So I, for one, can I just take time to personally acknowledge the great work of healthcare assistants. You really are an amazing bunch of people. Okay, some other comments coming into us. Patricia, the people that took all the brunt of the virus with no help whatsoever from the government but to watch oh sorry the people took all the brunt of the virus with no help whatsoever from the government but to watch Micheál Martin in the Dáil report anyone would think that he'd done his bit to stop the virus getting into the country well if he believes what he is saying it's even worse than what I thought the situation is Patricia I said it 14 months ago that if our Minister for Foreign Affairs didn't change his attitude we would all be in real trouble he didn't and it came to pass my worst fears the virus came into this country so one of the people who 14 months ago when we were starting to see what was happening in China there was a cohort of people who said lock the country down now you know start getting 
vaccination hotels in operation and if you're not going to do that then lock the country down don't allow anybody in or out of the country until we see what way the virus is developing but as of course we know that certainly didn't happen on First Holy Communions when a listener who has contacted us and is really anxious and worried about her little girl is due for First Holy Communion just does not know what to do about getting a dress and is fearful some companies and some shops seemingly are making appointments and you can go in and do dress fittings and all of that. But she's just fearful that if she buys it now because her school and her parish, they have no date at all when the communion will happen. It's been queried, it might happen in May, but no definite date. And she's fearful of going out and buying it. Some of those communion dresses are really expensive. And if she ends up with a dress that suddenly doesn't fit, what do you do? And we're here and we know, as I mentioned, the bishops have told people, told parents not to buy for First Holy Communion or for confirmation until they can get a definite date on when some of these ceremonies will go ahead. Uh, a listener from West Cork says, I have a grandson who is making his First Holy Communion in England. Uh, This year he was due to make it in May but the date has now been changed and they've given him a new date of October. By October I'm hoping things will have improved Uh, but then I hope to have had my vaccine. But it's great knowing this now at this stage that we have a definite date and maybe that's and I think the the mum who contacted us about her daughter I think that's what she wants. She just said give us some kind of a firm date And actually, if they went for dates like that, surely, surely by October, we'll be back to some kind of normality. And hopefully, to that West Cork listener, you'll be able to travel and be able to be with your grandson over in England on his communion, which should be really, really special indeed. And then can I just say, remember Frank was on earlier and was taking me to task. Frank in Ballinlock was taking me to task over my pronunciation of COVID. He says that I'm referring it to it as COVID. I'm putting a T instead of a D on the end. And I probably am. And he's saying that it's, we're talking about it a year now and that's important that we get the pronunciation right. And especially as a broadcaster, I should be getting it correct. Can I just say a number of people jumped in in my defence? And thank you for that. But, but just let me sum it up in one from Teresa. To say, Patricia, I would just like to congratulate Frank that he's no bigger worries in his life than the pronunciation of the word COVID. You've been a lifeline with your advice, information and encouragement for so many people. I'm sure anyone suffering loss, depression, illness, job losses would gladly gladly wish that that was their only problem. May I suggest that he says a prayer of thanks and that he does something positive. Put a smile on his face, say hello to a few people and I'm sure they won't worry how he pronounces it. Patricia, please carry on. Giving hope, positivity and heartfelt help to all of us. Thanking you from Teresa. Well, thank you. That's a really, really nice text and I know there were some other calls and texts in as well. So thank you. But listen, I don't want to have a go with Frank because I know... I annoy people sometimes when I constantly pronounce something wrong and I know that is a cause of annoyance to some people and we don't know what's going on in Frank's life at the moment and maybe he just needed to have a little bit of a rant and he wants to have the rant at me. My late mother would have always said she have a broad back, it'll just roll off you and we'll hopefully that's what it will do. But thank you. I do, um, it's not that I'm ignoring people's comments and uh, texts. I just don't want to read them all out but I'm, I'm appreciative of the people who did make contact. Thank you for that. On people who want to open up the church and get people back into Mass. It would be lovely, says this texter, for us all to go back into Mass. But please, can everybody stop and remember what happened at uh, Christmas? West Cork Churches, says this uh, texter, are open all day for private prayer and private reflection, as are most churches. I don't know if they're open all day, but many of them are open to allow people to go in for private reflection. So it's not that you've been banned completely from the church. You just can't go in. But I know, and I'm not taking from the people who really, really do uh, miss 
Miss Mass. Hi Patricia, listening to the comment about the vaccine rollout criticising Ireland and the EU. This was a text. Let me just refer back to this text. This was the text that came in of a listener saying, now it said, Ireland, you're a laughing stock. I changed that to we're because it looked like somebody was picking on us. Anyway, uh, the UK are laughing at all of us. It's embarrassing to be associated with this country. This was the original West Cork listener. Vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. And then was having a go at the EU saying if the EU say they don't have vaccines then take a legal challenge. And they ended the text by saying, well done, the UK for es- escaping the shack of the EU. So uh, another West Cork resident wants to pick up that West Cork resident and to say, I would hazard a guess, says this texter, that that person may be one of the many UK citizens living in West Cork. My response to that is to say, if you think the UK is doing a better job than Ireland and the EU, then maybe it's time for you to move back there. I'm sick of some of the attitudes that are here in West Cork. And that's from a listener who is living in West Cork sick of it and I don't know if the original texter is originally from England or not but this listener has a sneaking feeling that it is. On Joan says on churches did, and I, did, I wasn't aware of this, Joan says that some churches, mass is going on as we know and then it's been streamed people can watch it online Joan says that some churches offer communion in the car park afterwards. I wasn't aware of that and that the priest comes out and gives Holy Communion so people can sit in their car, they can listen to the Mass, you know, they can stream it on their phones and then the priest comes out at the end. I was unaware of that. Are there many churches doing that? According to Joan, that is what is happening. As I say, didn't realise that uh, myself. And just to follow on to yesterday when we did the piece with Margaret who was telling us about the state, and she sent in photographs, the state of the car park in Enniskeen. And we were trying to find out the exact ownership of the car park. And we had it confirmed, even though our gut instinct told us, and Margaret thought it as well, that the actual car park belongs to the church because it's between the church and the school. But it's a very busy car park. Everybody uses it, but it's just in really, really bad uh, condition. So we got onto the council to find out who owns it and who maintains it. And they've come back to say to us that the car park located between the National School and the church in Enniskeen is owned by the church and therefore is not within the remit of Cork County Council and actually in the middle of our discussion with Margaret yesterday uh, local councillor Declan Hurley contacted us to confirm the same thing and said that doesn't belong to the council but Declan Hurley did say to us at one stage the council were maintaining the car park because so many people were using it and we now need to find out why did they stop maintaining it because looking at the pictures it, they, it really is there's big craters of potholes uh, in it and Margaret was making the point the reason she contacted us she saw somebody in a, in a mobility scooter who hit one of these great big potholes and the mobility scooter and just very nearly toppled over. She actually got a fright watching the person in the mobility scooter. But she's fearful that it's, you know, it will be an accident or somebody in a wheelchair could topple over. So we'll try and find out why did the Cork County Council once maintain that car park and why have they suddenly stopped? Because there's no point saying the church should do something about it because I know exactly what will be told. No funds there to maintain the car park because uh, churches everywhere are certainly down on funds coming into the church because of the other discussion we've been having. No masses, no collections. 1850 333 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council's Community Support Programme here to assist vulnerable people with their daily needs through the COVID-19 pandemic. See corkcoco.ie And we've been talking 
talking about the fact that tomorrow is Daffodil Day on behalf of the Irish Cancer Society and a very different Daffodil Day this year. And I'm being told that Clonakilty Credit Union will be accepting donations for the Irish Cancer Society's Daffodil Day campaign during their opening hours today, tomorrow, Friday and again on Saturday. So if you're in Clon and want to give something for Daffodil Day, pop in to the uh, Credit Union there. And Dylan's Adventures are continuing their efforts to raise funds for Barrettstown with their latest event called Walk All Day Within Your Fi- Within Our 5K. Taking place on Easter Monday, Dylan, together with his dad, Pat, and sister Rachel, plan to start walking at 7am in the morning and they'll walk all day until sunset, which is after 8pm. And you can help them in their fundraising for Barrettstown by donating on their Just Giving page, which is Walk All Day Within Our 5K. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie Going to Banding Garda Station for this week's uh, Garda 5 with Inspector Ian O'Callaghan. Good, uh, good afternoon to you, Ian. Good afternoon. Please. And you're very welcome. And you start with an appeal for information on tools that were stolen. That's right. Uh, Sometime between Tuesday the 16th of March and Tuesday the 23rd of March, a shed was entered at Moss Grove in Crookstown. Now, over a thousand euro worth of property was stolen here, including an AMA single-handed chainsaw, a DeWalt cordless drill and a red shindy 488 chainsaw. Gardaí and Crookstown are investigating this crime. And it's important just for people to be aware of such items that are being targeted in relation to people's own property at home. And what should always be done is serial numbers recorded. And if you can, using stenciling, etc., even put your air code onto property that is expensive. It makes it unattractive for criminals to subsequently sell that property on. So that's very important advice. Mark them as clearly as, as you can. Yes, not to have a uniform like any other property to make it stand out uh, I suppose you're putting your own DNA on the property because that's what happens they're, they're stolen and then they're sold on yeah that's, they're, they're stolen yeah. Uh, with the view to sell it on at a knockdown price okay. as quickly as possible items stolen in Kinsale that's right uh, between Saturday the 20th of March at 5pm and 9am on Tuesday the 23rd of March a storage shed on the grounds of foot golf people would know it there it's a popular leisure amenity uh, just outside Belgooley in the townland of Ring and Annie. And it was broken into. And again, power tools were targeted here. You've obviously heard me over the years, Patricia, say that this is a particularly seasonal type of crime coming into the summer, the growth season, um, you know, where people were out cutting the grass and, and cutting back hedges now from the, the weeks ahead. And you can see it in the type of crime that's happening currently. And a two-still petrol streamer was stolen here, a still leaf blower, a still fuel-injected 7.9cc uh, chainsaw and two steel hedge trimmers, which are 75-centimetre blades. So they're like industrial-type hedge trimmers. So again, they're stolen to be sold on. So again, it's important for people to be aware of that and to be aware that your tools are at risk in particular this time of the year. So ensure they're target-hardened and property market. And we need, to, we need to stop the market. We need people to stop buying these tools at knockdown uh, price. Okay, an, an unusual theft is a tractor, a vintage tractor? A vintage tractor, yes. Uh, most unusual. Um, certainly would not have come across this type of crime in my career. Um, this occurred in the early hours of yesterday morning, we believe. We're pretty certain of that. Um, a vintage Fordson Major tractor. Um, people who are into their vintage vehicles would, would be aware 
of such a tractor. And a lot of effort was was done in removing this from the townland of Glowen in Skull there on the Mizzen Peninsula. And we believe that occurred in the early hours of yesterday morning between midnight and 3am. So I know it was obviously in the middle of the night, but, but somebody on the Mizzen may have heard a trailer because obviously a trailer would have had to be used to get this tractor onto the back of a vehicle towing it. And, you know, somebody may have even heard a racket or may have been awoken from their sleep um, hearing such noise in the dead of the night. So we're, we're interested in that from the point of view of direction of travel. So Guardian Skull are investigating that particular And crime. also well planned, uh, Ian. That wasn't opportunistic. That oh, was no, a, well, a well planned theft. No, there was yeah. recognizance done there. Yeah. And they brought the equipment with them to remove the vehicle and to be able to jack it up onto the, the vehicle that was removing it from the property. As I said, a very isolated area and a lot of effort to get at this particular tractor. So um, we're, we're, we're very anxious to um, to get as much information as possible okay. on this. You're looking for information on the theft of a female adult foal. Again, yeah, something uh, we don't often talk about no, on, on the Garda file. No, no. And this happened in Ahamilla, just on the Demanway side of Clonakilty there. Um, it's a pretty definitive wi- time window, I suppose, on the 18th of March, which was the Thursday after Patrick's Day. Um, afternoon time between 3pm and 6.30pm, a female foal was uh, stolen from a field there, as I said, in Ahamilla, just not too far outside Clonakilty Town. So, again, there would have had to have been a horse box uh, utilised there to take that animal. So, again, if people can jog their memories um, in the general Clonakilty area that afternoon, that Thursday, uh, Gardaí and Clonakilty are investigating. OK, and unfortunately, while that's an uncommon theft, what is common is, is the theft of dogs. There was an attempted theft of a dog in Oysterhaven. There was, uh, but there was a happy conclusion here as regards the animal, thank God, was um, was returned to its owner. Uh, this happened on Sunday the 21st of March at around 1pm in the townland of Knockacullen in Oysterhaven. So it was a Sunday afternoon and an attempt was made uh, by the occupant of a white van uh, to steal a Jack Russell Terrier. Now the attempt, as I said, was foiled. Uh, but we're particularly anxious to hear from anybody who may have been in Oyster Haven, if they think back any of your listeners, last Sunday afternoon or that general area, particularly those who may have dash cam footage, um, because we're certain it was a white van and Gardaí and Kinsale are investigating that attempted crime. Two tonnes of fire logs stolen in Ballydesmond. Yes, uh, this happened last the early hours of, we're pretty sure, between one 15am in the morning and 1.30 in the morning last Sunday morning, uh, which would have been Saturday night, Sunday morning, obviously, and two tonne of fire logs were stolen uh, from a lay-by on a field in the injured party's property uh, there in Ballydesmond. And again, um, while this was the early hours of the morning, we're anxious to hear from anybody, there would have had to have been a trailer used and there was, we believe, a white van involved in it as well. So again, if anybody seen or heard anything in relation to again direction of travel we'd be anxious Gardaí and Mill Street are investigating that crime. Okay and good to hear there's been no break-ins in cars in the last uh, couple of weeks uh, but to remind people keep your car locked. Yeah keep your car locked uh, especially outside your home and obviously the, the old advice that we give but it's so true never leave any valuables on display no matter how short a time span you leave your car unattended for. So that's very encouraging we hope to see that continue over the weeks and months ahead low figures in relation to break-ins to cars and people can do people can contribute hugely to that crime not happening them 
by following those two simple pieces of advice. Okay, a couple of criminal damage events starting with uh, Bridewell Lane in Bandon. In Bantry. Uh, Bantry, sorry. Bridewell Lane in Bantry there. It's, it's a popular spot, well known to people there in Bantry. Um, so yeah, look, we're looking for, again, information or appeal for information in relation to a gazebo uh, which was slashed outside a commercial premises six or seven times. Um, this happened broad daylight on Patrick's Day between two and five. Um, so, look, it's important while we appeal for information, it's also important that people uh, resident in Bantry are aware that if they see any antisocial behaviour uh, along Bridewell Lane, that they please ring the local Garda station and we can deal with the matter. And there was a vacant premises at the window smashed? That's right. Now, the, the premises wasn't entered, but nonetheless, the, the window was smashed using a hammer, and that occurred at Corlahay in Farron uh, between last Sunday the 21st and this Wednesday the 24th of March. So, Gardy in Crookstown are dealing with that incident. OK, and over the last few weeks, there have been several people arrested for drug driving. Seven people arrested for drugs driving offences in just the Cork West Division alone. Well, I believe we have had 31 arrests. Uh, for the year to date. So, again, we're, it's totally zero-tolerance approach. Um, you know, we just can't tolerate people under the influence of, of cannabis or cocaine or or other stronger controlled drugs and going out on the roadway and putting their own lives and passengers' and other road users' lives at risk. So, look, it's to be aware that we have these devices at all our checkpoints. Uh, these devices can check the presence of drugs in people's systems uh, in a matter of minutes and they are being utilised. So, look, we're just putting it out there that, unfortunately, that's a too large a number of arrests to be occurring, but it's clearly showing a prevalence of drugs in society at the moment. And also, there's enough checkpoints there that if you're going to be that stupid, you are going to get caught. Uh, yes, very yeah. much so, and we will be utilising the devices. OK, and finally, Ian, continues to be a spike in scams, online scams. There is uh, probably more than I've ever seen over all my years looking at crime around the area and the county. And I don't know what the theory is. Is it maybe people are more at home and on their devices and more susceptible then to become a victim of these types of crime? Or is it there's actually more of these fraudsters and scams, uh, people scamming uh, in operation? Uh, it certainly seems to be... Um, it's very much on the increase. And again, look, we are asking everybody when they're on a tablet or a device or on picking up a random phone call or receiving a text message, whatever medium they are getting communication from an external source, please stop and think before you send any information relating to your bank details. Uh, we're speaking to far too many victims of these crimes and the recurring theme, Patricia, is that people are telling us they haven't actually taught what they were doing properly. Mm. Um, it was only after the event, they probably were thinking to themselves, oh, that doesn't seem right now. So you just, before you take out your, your bank cards and things like that and start keying the information into a device, uh, please stop and think. You sh- what you should be doing is getting onto the provider to ensure this is actually a genuine request. What they do is they try and dupe you into a scenario that you're in a bit of a panic, that your delivery isn't coming on time or something like that is an issue with it. Or indeed, they will turn it the other way that you're actually due a refund uh, in relation to some service provider. And, you know, a lot of people are jumping on to the fact that there's so much online activity now 
uh, particularly in relation to purchases. So you have to be very, very careful no matter what age you are. Yeah, and while you say you're seeing an increase, I also think it is hugely underreported. People get embarrassed. I, I know a friend of mine got caught out and when I was told her, I said, you report to the guard? She said, oh no, I'd be too embarrassed no. uh, to report. People need to report. People need to report it. Um, never feel embarrassed about being the victim of these crimes. It happens every day of the week. We will investigate the matters. They are problematic to investigate. That's why... In the main, we try to create public awareness. Um, a lot of the scams emanate from outside the jurisdiction, um, and and these fraudsters know uh, that it is. It gets really problematic in relation to when they're potentially thousands of miles away perpetrating these crimes um, under, I suppose, anonymous servers on different computers. Um, okay. So it's, it's, it's about people taking self-responsibility with their bank details. OK. Listen, uh, Ian, pleasure as always. Thank you for that. We'll chat again in the coming weeks, but thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Claire. Good afternoon, as the State Inspector. Ian O'Callaghan joining us from Bandon, uh, Garda Station. And actually, a listener says, I want to compliment the Garda. It's been known for a while that two gyms in my area have been operating classes behind closed doors. They've been doing it for the last few months since we went into Level 5 car park is full and the music is blasting out. It's selfish and all about personal egos and money. Finally, the guards have stopped this. I'm all for mental health. I'm all for fitness and I love going to the gym. But your health is your wealth. Get out for a walk. Go for a run. Please don't write out my name. Uh, But I wonder, are there more gyms operating like the hairdressers that you spoke about earlier? I don't know, but very stupid to have a car park full and music blaring. Very obviously, there's something going on inside in the gym certainly with the hairdressers it's much more in the shadow economy because they're slipping in and out of people's houses so it's not as obvious and when we were talking about some churches giving out communion and I was wondering is there a lot of that going on we were talking about Joan one of our listeners was on to us to say that in she knows of a church where people sit outside in their cars while Mass is on and at the end of Mass the priest slips out and goes around to the cars handing out communion and I was wondering is that quite commonplace well Mary in West Cork says Patricia the guard he went into a church in West Cork in January and told the priest he would be fined if he continued to give out communion to people in uh, cars. So it may be going on, but it's very, it's certainly going on very, very quietly. And hi, Patricia. I, this is Tim and you all. I wish to concur with your views with regards to health care assistants and workers. These workers do a fantastic job. They work hand in hand with nurses and care for patients' needs in a very personal way. They have a versatile job and are very qualified in their own right. This is recognised by patients and senior staff in all healthcare centres and especially comes to the fore when you're a patient in a busy hospital and if you're in need of healthcare, that's when you'll see how important healthcare assistants are. That's from Tim and you all. Thank you for that, Tim. OK, I need to take a break because we are back with Jane Pickett, our resident vet, answering your pet questions. If you have pet questions, get them into us, please. 1850 John Paul will take the calls or if you want to text or WhatsApp me a pet question, you can. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Down to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. This is the Court Today replay on C103. While we're waiting to link up with uh, Jane Pickett, our resident vet, uh, the listener who had been on to us earlier from West Cork, who was critical about the way this country is rolling out the vaccine and in comparison to what's going on in the UK and who said well done to the UK for escaping the shackles of the EU and to say that Ireland, you're a laughing uh, stock. And then somebody says, I bet you that West Cork listener is originally a UK uh, citizen. Well, that listener has come back to say, yes, I am a UK citizen living here in Ireland in West Cork. I own a house and I pay my taxes. I'm entitled to query the lack of progress with vaccinations. And I know how people feel about the English. I see it every day. And yes, once I'm vaccinated, I'm booking a one-way ticket out of this country, which saddens me to hear you leaving such a beautiful part of the country. We mightn't have got the vaccination right, but I think we're a jolly nice country to live in and I think West Cork in particular will always be my spiritual home. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful place to live but all we can do is wish you the very best and thank you for your text to 0862 103 103. Jane Pickett, our resident vet, should be at the end of the line. Good afternoon to you, Jane. Good afternoon, Patricia. And let me go straight into questions because there's a number of questions in for you, starting with Breathe in Mallow to say, Hi, Patricia, I can't believe. So much time has passed. My oldest cat died around Christmas time and it wasn't a surprise as it had She'd been poorly over the last couple of years. Meantime, the kittens moved in. They're absolutely beautiful, loving and gentle little cats. Now, my problem is my other cat. My 14-year-old cat, Lily, is still having none of it. Will not tolerate the kittens. She'll chase them. If she catches them, she hits them. If they come anywhere near her, I'm at my wit's end now. Lily spends 90% of her time upstairs crying until I coax her back downstairs. Long story is I did have a full medical done on January because I was starting to fear that she might be in pain, but she was given a clean bill of health. So it is definitely the kittens arriving into the household. She simply does not want to share her house. I'm afraid she's the nearest thing to a bully. She actually didn't like the older cat who passed away at Christmas as well. Any help would be gratefully appreciated. By the way, the mother of the kittens is coming regularly now for food, but that's another issue. Oh, this is Breather who took in, do you remember the two feral kittens? Oh, yeah. OK, so uh, they've, yes, yes, they've settled in. You've done really well with them, uh, Breather. Does she just have to accept that Lily will never accept the kittens into the house at this stage? 
I think it's a bit of a difficult one. My heart goes out to you because you're really trying to do everything you can and you've done all of the right things. You've checked that it's not pain or discomfort that's causing Lily's problem um, or, or kind of grumpiness. You've given them lots of space. One thing I would say is time it really helps. And I know that is very frustrating to hear. Um, it does take a little while for them to all get the lay of the land and decide who's boss. Uh, and they're with cats, there does tend to be kind of a certain hierarchy when they do live in multi-cat households. Now, cats, by their very nature, tend to be kind of solitary animals with their own particular territory. So in Lily's head, her house is the territory and now there's two new invaders. Um, so it's going to take a little bit of getting used to. Cats are very resource based. So the way they are pre-programmed to think is I need food, water, somewhere to sleep and probably a human for cuddles if I can get one. So everything in their mind is to protect those resources so the best thing you can do is make sure that there's lots of different opportunities for them to get food water somewhere to sleep and also particularly somewhere to pee so a litter tray if they are kept entirely inside um, and try to kind of give all of them attention solo attention um, at various points of the day um, normally we would suggest for a litter tray at least one more litter tray than the number of cats in the house so you need a minimum of four maybe five in your household now that sounds a lot but to try and get this to calm down it's really essential try feeding all of the cats in different places so that they visually can't see each other when they're eating entirely different rooms if possible because they will always be on edge when they're eating and if they're on edge when they're eating then that is, is something that's really undesirable what I would say is that it's probably going to take a lot of time. Some things that you can do to help the situation will be to get a hormone diffuser. So there is a diffuser on the market called Feliway. There's lots of other ones available, but uh, there is one that um, has a pheromone from it that essentially will be the same thing that they would have had when they were kittens with their mum. You plug it into the wall in the place that they spend most of their time. Now, hopefully you're hoping that they're going to spread out over the house so that they don't have to encounter each other unless they want to. So maybe one or two diffusers within the household. It's not so something we can smell at all but it's just kind of ambiently in the air for them and it can sometimes chill them out a little bit i would say in my experience is about 50 50 it works pretty well in 50 percent of situations and does nothing at all to help in the other 50 but it sounds like it might be something to try in this case i think time time is a, a really really good one and i know it can be difficult to see them kind of being at odds with each other but in another sense that is their own kind of way of, of figuring out how to live in their new situation so a certain amount of that has to happen but just try and keep everyone safe if you can Okay well done uh, Anne in Beira my cat has developed a really bad cough it actually sounds quite chesty what could the problem be and what would be Jane's advice? Okay quite a chesty cough could be a number of things um, high high up on the list will be a chest infection very much similar to ourselves um, so either a bacteria or a virus that's caused a chest infection. Um, sometimes they can have a kind of a airway inflammation that can be a long-term thing for them sometimes they can have kind of an asthma they can um, even let's say get kind of chronic inflammation in their airways that causes them to produce quite a lot of mucus which would make things sound quite chesty what i would say is in this case i would definitely suggest um visiting your vet for an assessment because i really do think that they will need to be have a physical exam done and potentially some treatment 
Okay. Um, Jane, my cat, who is nearly 14, has ongoing problems with her skin. Uh, Has been on steroids and antibiotics down through the years, but now she's got fur falling out for a long time. She also has some fur loss in some places. Now, she's an extremely nervous cat, so I don't really want to take her to the vet because she is so uh, nervous. She doesn't go out much. I'd be grateful for any advice. I brush her quite a lot. Uh, what do you think it could be? Okay, so I think in in this case, I totally understand your concerns with being nervous about taking your cat out outside of its own environment if it's not used to that. Cats are quite fragile creatures in the way, and they really don't like change. You get where you're coming from there. What I would say is, as a first point of call, if there's lots of hair kind of falling out, cover the basics. So the common things are common. So the common causes of itchiness or hair loss um, would be um, flea and mite infestation. Now, even if we have a background allergy that might be causing a lot of the itching, scratching or hair falling, um, fleas and mites and any other external parasites are what we call a flare factor. So if we already have a skin that's particularly irritable, if they get a bite from a flea or a mite, it can really set off a big flare up. So visit your vet, speak to them about the about the concerns because we are always here to help and just voice your concerns with them and see see if it will be worth trying uh, just a, an over-the-counter flea and worm treatment that you obtained from your vet initially. But it does sound like they may well need to be seen for a more intensive investigation, um, particularly if this is a longer-term issue. And the fact it's going on for a long time. Yeah, and and the fact that, like, if if it has been going on for a long time, it really does probably need a full kind of skin workup, as I'm sure your vet will will probably have discussed with you. What I would say is just let your vet know your concerns about making them nervous so that they can try and book you a time either when there's no cats or no dogs expected kind of in the yard or in the waiting room um, so that it's a nice, calm, quiet environment. They may be able to book you at the end of a consulting block as well when things tend to be a little bit quieter around the office. With cats, we know what they're like as vets. We really do try and keep things as gentle and as kind of minimal handling as possible because we know that they they don't like change and they like routine. Okay, here's an old dog, a 19-year-old big male collie dog eating well but drinking a large amount of water. He gets worm dosed every three months. He has been diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, He's very nervous to walk on lino on floors and will not go up steps at the front door. This has been going on for the past two years. Otherwise, he's good. He's eating well, well able to walk and uh, run. What would be explaining the drinking a lot of water and not wanting to go up the steps at the front door? Okay, so first and foremost, the drinking a lot of water. Our listener says here that um, he has already been diagnosed with yeah. diabetes. Yeah. Um, so diabetes is when we our body can't control or deal with the sugar that we take in. So we end up with a very high blood sugar. Uh, that works in lots of different ways on our kidneys and our bladder to mean that we drink a lot more water. What I would say is uh, from the sounds of it, if they're still drinking a lot, they may not be on treatment for their diabetes or their treatment may not have been, let's say, fully optimized by their vet. What I would say is that it is really difficult for us as vets managing diabetic patients because really optimal control of diabetes requires insulin injections either once or twice daily, sometimes more frequently, but that will be rare. But we really are dependent on our lovely owners communicating with us that the signs are not controlled at home so if they're still drinking a lot the signs are not controlled if you are on medication so we're really dependent on you letting us know how they're doing so that we can schedule let's say blood glucose checks so blood sugar checks to try and adjust the dose to optimize it so every every dog is a little bit different with their medication for that so 
my first and foremost, I would say contact your vet to let them know that if they are on treatment, they're still drinking a lot and they probably probably might need some dosage. And what, and what would cause, be guide you what would cause the problem with not wanting to go up the steps? Would that be a pain issue, the fact he's 19? It, it could well be uh, mobility, I suppose. Anything that's going to put extra strain on the joints, so going up and down stairs like ourselves or walking on a slippery floor, we're always a lot more tense when we're walking on a slippery floor. So sometimes it can exacerbate any, any underlying pain or discomfort we have. So when you're speaking to your vet, just have a discussion with them as regards that their mobility may not be what it once was and whether they might require some pain relief ongoing. But your own vet will be best to guide you with that. Okay. All right. We leave it there, Jane. Listen, have a great week and we'll talk to you next uh, Thursday. Thanks for joining us. You too. Thank uh, you. Good afternoon to you. That is uh, Jane Pickett of the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital, part of the Mill Street Veterinary uh, Group. Okay. That's where we wrap it up for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon and we'll have another edition of Cork today tomorrow at, at 10 o'clock. On to then, I'm Patricia Messenger. Have a very good afternoon and stay safe. Cork today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance cmig.ie A lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.